Welcome to week 48 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books, in which we take a look at Rory Stewart's first book, published in 2004, about his walk across central Afghanistan some months after the 9-11 hijackings and the subsequent invasion of Afghanistan and overthrow of the Taliban. I had read Stewart's 2006 book, Occupational Hazards, about his time as a deputy governor of a part of Iraq, my son. Occupational hazards was wry, thoughtful and frightening in all sorts of ways. First, there was the vulnerability of the officials, including Stuart, involved in the aftermath of the invasion. The perpetual threat of rocket attacks and ambushes of one sort or another. And perhaps more frightening still, the blank incomprehension and cultural folly of the American politicians and officials and some of the Brits involved in the chequered attempts at reconstruction in the years after the 2002 invasion. As a teenager, I was an avid reader of travellers' tales, like Jonathan Rabban's sharp, witty voyage down the Mississippi, Old Glory, discussed back in episode 28 of 60 Weeks, 60 Books. Having finished Occupational Hazards, I found myself missing Stuart's somewhat wry style, so I picked up The Places in Between, the only other book he had written at the time. It seemed an appropriate companion piece to travel writing I had read many years earlier by Robert Byron and Eric Newby. Robert Byron's most famous work is probably The Road to Oxiana, based on his travels in Persia and Afghanistan in the mid-1930s, and published in 1937. Born in 1905, like Stuart, an Etonian, he began at the age of 20 by travelling across Europe in 1925 and then went further and further afield. Fascinated by architecture and art, by the classics, Byron's attempt to travel out of Herat in search of gardens, minarets and elegant buildings is stifled by dysentery and bad weather. Eric Newby's 1958 travel classic, A Short Walk in the Hindu Kush, is an altogether breezier affair, comical and focused more on a very amateur attempt to climb a mountain, Mir Samir, with his friend Hugh Carlis. It is full of deprecating anecdotes and much amusement regarding the antics of Johnny Foreigner. Stuart's book is very different. In 2000, he took a leave of absence from the Foreign Office to walk extensively in Iran, Pakistan, northern India and Nepal. Initially stymied in his attempt to cross Afghanistan, first by the Taliban and then by the process during late 2001 of ousting the Taliban from power, he eventually persuades both employer and family that he should spend January 2002 walking between Herat and Kabul. Beset by Afghan security officials and deep suspicion surrounding his purpose and intentions, as well as incomprehension, Stuart sets off to the disbelief of the Afghans around him. He has three security men from Herat initially accompanying him, all three baffled and one gets the inevitable impression rather exasperated by his absolute insistence on walking, his complete refusal to hop into a land cruiser and take the easy way out. Within 10 days, these companions abandon him and he is thereafter on his own. Although not entirely on his own, at one early stop, he is given a weary mastiff who he names Babur after the founder of the Mughal Empire, who has in part inspired this journey.
Babur is a great walking companion. January is not a great time to be travelling in mountainous terrain, still less in a country scarred by decades of conflict, first against the Soviet occupiers between 1979 and 1989, and then one warlord pitted against another, and eventually between various warlords and the Taliban. Stuart finds himself seeking shelter in villages which can scarcely feed themselves, let alone an English stranger and his dog. Very often, Babur and Stuart share nothing but naan bread during the day and dishes of rice in the evening. The level of hospitality varies from a degree of warmth and comfort and a decent meal to exile in stables and chilly ruined forts or outhouses attached to mosques with, at best, a mug of tea for the night. The book is divided into seven sections and within these, the chapters record a day's walk the people Stuart encountered, the terrain, the exquisite ruins of what were once the great buildings and settlements of the Khorid Empire, which lasted over four centuries from the end of the 8th century to the early 13th century. For me, the big question is why walking? Stuart himself is clearly not entirely sure. He reflects on the evolutionary importance of walking, of how Homo sapiens spread across the world on foot, on Bruce Chapman's view that all travel should be done where possible on foot, as it makes us think and live better. Stuart, having by this time walked extensively before arriving in Herat, does not seem wholly convinced. Intellectually, He knows that walking can bring on contemplation and deeper engagement with our world. All sorts of spiritual enlightenment, as achieved by Buddha or William Wordsworth. But whether this applies to him, he does not seem quite so sure. The book is jam-packed with every conceivable discomfort. There is quite a lot of walking in the rain, in sleet and snow, in blizzards, climbing, scrambling through drifts, a good deal of hunger, not to mention diarrhoea, fever and pain, and moments of startling isolation. One moment in particular resonated with me on my first and subsequent readings, which I think is worth quoting in full. Stuart begins, The next morning I walked across the frozen lake, and standing in the very centre, looked back at a mosque, carved into a cliff the colour of elm wood. A smooth layer of powder covered the ice, broken only by a single set of footprints and a single set of paw prints. Babur and I climbed up the facing cliff onto the snow plateau we had been crossing the previous day. After a few minutes, it seemed I had never been so alone, or anywhere so silent. The only sounds were the creak of my staff and my steps. I could see nothing across the whole circle of the plateau, except our tracks in the snow, and behind them, the mountain peaks. The snow was light and ruffled under my boots, and when I looked back, a slender feather flared out from each heel mark. As we continued, the winged footprints and the oblong grooves of the staff changed shape, freezing and melting in the sun. I stopped, sat down, got up, walked ten more minutes, and then, because I felt exhausted, sat down again, half buried in deep powder. 
My feet were wet, my hands were cold, and the wind moved in a fine white mist over the surface of the snow. I lifted my sunglasses and looked through sudden light at a landscape shrinking, contorting, corroding, dissolving. There was no winged footprint or horizon in the even glare. I could not remember why I was walking. I was sick. My muscles were stiff. The snow formed a bright, clean cushion, perfectly shaped to my back. Lying back, I felt warm and at ease. I closed my eyes and smiled. I had done enough. It occurred to me that no one could criticise me for staying here. I half opened my eyes and the sun seemed particularly brilliant. The unbroken powder stretched without end. It was a very private place and here, buried in the snow with only my head in the sun, my body would not be disturbed for days. I knew villages lay ahead but there seemed no point in trying to reach them. Beside me, Babur scuttled snow with his large paws. He buried his nose in the powder, emerged blinking with a white beard on his black muzzle, then lay down heavily, craning his head to the side to lick the ice. After a few minutes, he sat up on his haunches and then walked stiffly to where I was sitting. I could feel his warm breath on my neck as he sniffed carefully around my collar and gently pushed his nose against my ear. When I did not respond, he backed away, watched me, approached again, and finally began to walk away across the snow plain, occasionally looking over his shoulder. When he was 200 yards ahead, he stopped, turned, and barked once. His matter-of-factness made me feel that I was being melodramatic. If he was going to continue, so would I. I stood and followed in his tracks. Although Stuart was potentially under much greater threat from the unpredictable and occasionally hostile humans he met along the way, this is the moment where he seems in most danger. And without Babur, I wonder whether he would have survived or simply drifted into oblivion. The appeal of the bright, clean cushion of snow, the brilliant sun, the unbroken, unblemished surface must have been considerable. The nature of this very private place, an echo from Marvell's line to his coy mistress, the grave's a fine and private place, but none, I think, do there embrace, is an indicator of Stuart's dislocation and vulnerability. I'm very glad that Babur was able to stir him from his stupor and prod him into continuing his walk. Stuart is now a far more familiar character, known in the way that famous people become almost public property, thanks to his podcast with Alistair Campbell, The Rest is Politics, his time as an MP, his work for NGOs, notably Turquoise Mountain and Give Directly, not to mention his bids to be leader of the Conservatives and Mayor of London. His latest book, published in September this year, Politics on the Edge, is a bestseller. But that sense of dislocation and vulnerability persist. I think, and emerge at times when he is interviewing others and in conversation with Campbell. It is one of the endearing things about him. A new statesman profile of Stuart this September suggests there is within him an inbuilt tension between the way he wishes things were and the way he knows things actually are. 
The exhaustion that he felt, not simply from his walk, but from everything he was experiencing in the places in between, is an early indication of that tension. I hope, though, that we are about to see a possible return to the fray to political life as he settles back in London and Scotland. What comes across to me reading both of his early books, and more clearly through his media work, is a fundamental decency, a moral compass, as well as a clarity of understanding about what needs to be done, how it could be done. He has interesting ideas about, for example, direct donations of money to the homeless and vulnerable, as well as a breadth of knowledge and experience that is sorely lacking in our current British government. Back to the book. In both the print and Kindle versions, there are line drawings by Stuart of the men he met along the way. He met scarcely any women, of course. I love these drawings. They're mainly profiles, really basic, the kind of work a GCSE student might produce, most of his sitters appearing to have incredibly small rectangular skulls. Still, each sketch distinguishes the individual and gives some sense of the very different personalities and characters he met. As he makes his way across the hundreds of miles between Herat and Kabul, Stuart keeps a detailed diary, spending where he can as much as two hours each day updating his notes. There are practical questions I really want answered. Where did he get his boots? These seem to me the most important piece of kit, and it would be interesting to know what took him, apparently without blisters, across 500 plus miles of tough terrain. How and when did he keep his diaries? What was he using to write with? What kind of notebooks did he carry? How many layers did he wear? In both the photos and the book, he talks about wearing a shalva kameez, the classic long shirt and baggy trousers worn by most men in Pakistan and Afghanistan. He clearly has a sweater and a north face down jacket. But was he wearing thermal leggings? There are photos of a bit of the first half of the walk, but then one of the men he encountered grabbed his camera off him and used up the better part of his film, snapping images of the ground, leaving Stuart with less than a roll of film to continue the other half of his walk. There are many such encounters with really quite difficult individuals, shot at, stoned, on one occasion quite late in the book, punched, Stuart in print at least maintains an equanimity and dignity apart from that final episode when he is menaced four days away from Kabul by a group of men, one of whom punches him, seizes his walking stick and swings it at him. Stuart loses his temper, but fortunately for him, an interpreter from Médecins Sans Frontières, where he had stayed the previous night, appears, vouches for him and gives him time to extract the letter of recommendation and safe passage he has received from the local governor Khalili. And as he progresses closer to Kabul, Stuart makes sure he has the letter ready at every checkpoint. The Afghanistan that Stuart depicts is fraught with local vendettas, rivalries and feuds. The men he meets have fought in some cases for, in some cases against, and in many instances both in turn, the Russians, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda and each other. My Kindle edition includes an afterword written in 2014, by which time Stuart had worked for a further 10 years in Afghanistan, building the Turquoise Mountain Charity, named for the plundered ruins of the lost city of the Horid Emperors. Those final words are a warning of the follies of throwing military might, men, materiel and empty development missions 
at Afghanistan. I wonder what an updated afterward would look like now, another decade on, following the withdrawal of troops and the return of the Taliban. Excoriating, I suspect. My suspicion is that the majority of men that Stuart met along his route in 2002 are, if alive, still caught up in their confrontations and conflicts, still visiting horrible tortures and cruelty on one another and on the starving population of women and children. I finished The Places in Between this time with a sense of melancholy. The book ends on Stuart's return to his family home in Scotland, where he receives some heartbreaking news. But I think layered onto that sorrowful note, there is also the heartbreak now of seeing the 20 years of fleeting, imperfect nation-building utterly erased by the latest iteration of violence, ignorance and ugliness manifest in Afghanistan. Next week, join me for a book about reading, about how great books can liberate even in the midst of oppression. Sadly, reading Lolita in Tehran, Azana Fizi's great book about the importance of reading in times of oppression seems more relevant than ever as the furies are unleashed once again on anyone standing up to the clerics governing Iran.